Uh, my name is David, as uh, as they said. And yeah, if you got a Bible, pull it out. You've been kind of you heard that story. Um, but yeah, welcome to Salt. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Salt Company was a ministry in Ames, Iowa, where like I came to know Jesus. Uh, it changed my life, and I never like wanted to be a pastor. This isn't like my life plan. It was just like something that happened upon me, and now we're here together. And so. Uh, my wife's name is Steffi, Steffi Livingston. We've been married for uh, over 10 years now. We've got two little kids, a little dude named Silas, who's almost four, who is like the coolest little dude. If you ever come to Treeline, he will be like the little blur that just like runs past your feet, probably runs into you, all right? That's Silas. And I've got a little girl named Indy who has like more hair than any other baby in the entire world, all right? So I have been following Jesus for 14 years. Um, it's the best decision I ever made in my life. Like the best decision I ever made was to just put a flag on the ground and say, I want to follow Jesus and I wanna make my whole life about him. I did that when I was a freshman and like the whole rest of my life is history. But here's what we've got tonight. All right, we've got three stories that each kind of give a window into the heart of Jesus and his power. But, but more than that, I think these three stories are meant to like give us a, a picture into uh, really like a frightening picture of who Jesus is. All right, now the first story that we kind of read tonight, the first story, we're just gonna call it like Jesus in the wilderness, okay? Now Jesus is in the middle of ministry, right? He's got lots of stuff going on. You kind of heard this, right, as she was reading. And his disciples, what happens is they come back from the road and they need kind of a break from ministry, a break from the crowds. And this is what it says in verse 31. Jesus says this, he says, hey, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. It says, for many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. Some of you feel that way, right? If you had a quiz this week, you're like, I haven't even eaten. I've been studying so much. And so he's like, you got to leave that. Leave that, come away with me to a desolate place. And this is what happens. They go away and everyone sees where they're going. Like they see them and they're like, nice try, Jesus. Like the lake's not that big. By the way, uh, the Sea of Galilee, like if you've ever been there, anyone ever been there? Okay, yeah, like the Sea of Galilee, you get there and you're like, oh, the sea. And then you get there and you're like, this is like a medium-sized lake, okay? You can like see to the other side. So anyway, that's the Sea of Galilee. So they're like, he's clearly going over here. The whole crowd gathers on the other side of the lake. And by the time they get there, there's like thousands of people. Like the villages have emptied and all these people are waiting to hear from Jesus. And it says that when Jesus saw them, it says he had compassion on them for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it's in this moment, I feel like we get this glimpse into the heart of Jesus because you might be like, well, what would it be like if I stumbled upon Jesus in a very specific time in his life where he's trying to get some rest? He, he is pretty exhausted. He's trying to get some time alone. What would it be like if I found him in this moment and I just like dumped all my neediness on him, right? Like, hey, Jesus, here's everything. Here's all my needs. Uh, by the way, I brought 5,000 friends with me, right? Well, what would it be like? Well, I think what would it be like is he would see you. He would have compassion on you and he would enjoy spending time with you. You see, Jesus, he sees these people and he teaches them and he doesn't just teach them for a minute. Like, okay, I'll give you a little bit. He teaches them the entire day. Like the whole day he spends with them and eventually it's getting late and his disciples come to him. And they're like, Jesus, you got to send these people home. Like we've been here all day. We're in like this desolate place. Uh, there's no food here. Everyone's hungry. Send them away to go get food for themselves. But Jesus says, no, actually let's do this. You give them something to eat. And they're like, uh, dude, I don't know if you just heard us like, we're in the desert, like we're in the wilderness uh, and there's no food. And Jesus says, okay, well, go, go and find out what food we have, right? So they go, they collect inventory 
and they come back with an astonishing harvest, okay? Five loaves and two fish, which honestly is amazing that this many people had so little food, okay? Like, there's 5,000 people, and that's all they have. Like, Silas had more food in his backpack going to 3K today. Like, he really did. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, okay, it's these large French baguettes. Like, maybe if everyone takes a small bite. No, it's like five little, like, pita things. It's like, it's not very much at all. And it's not like someone's like, I have two tuna. Or like someone's like, I have two whole swordfish. It's like, no, these little, tiny little fish, you know, it's like this measly little portion that's maybe enough for one person if they're not very hungry. And Jesus is like, sweet, that's perfect. He holds up the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, probably breaks up the fish, hands it to his disciples, and he's like, sweet, hand this out now. <laughs> and his disciples are like, okay, I guess Jesus wants to send a message, like, don't be late, like, everyone in the first row gets snacks, no one else does, right? And so they start, like, handing out this bread and fish, and you know what probably happened, right? Like, at first, the people were like, okay, this is whatever, like, they take a little bit, and it's like the first 10 people, they, they start to realize, like, they're kind of confused, right? They're like, wait, I thought there wasn't very much. And they have like a bunch in their hands. And it starts to just kind of get passed further and further into this group. And there probably begins to be this like low murmur that rises from the front of the crowd, right? And all of a sudden, like the first hundred people, they're all like eating food. Like they're eating their fill and they're still passing it on. And there's probably begins to be this like laughter and applause. And the food starts to pass like faster and faster into the hands of thousands of people to the very back of the crowd. And there probably begin to just be this absolute like deafening roar of celebration. People in the back don't even really know what's going on. But all of a sudden, there's this like massive amounts of food that are being handed all the way to the back because this group of people wasn't just hearing about one of Jesus' miracles they were in one and they were like tasting it and at the end as everyone had their fill they passed back the leftovers and it says they had 12 baskets full I don't know if you're like me but I'm always stunned like why did you have more baskets than food like you had plenty of baskets in part of this group you just had no food it seems like poor planning but anyway it's an amazing story and you need to understand like it, it really happened like, it really happened. And, and, you know, the details are so specific. You might be like, why is it so specific with, like, how many loaves and fish and, like, the number of baskets? You're like, why is it giving us this? It's just because that's how many there were. And it really happened. And everyone's like, yeah, remember it was, like, five and two. Like, we remember it because it really happened. But here's the question that you should be asking when you read this story. And not just this story, but stories like it. So what? So what? I mean, this is really cool. Like, no, no doubt. Like, if this was one of the things that was happening around campus tonight, there was like a homeless dude multiplying food outside of the union. Like, that would be on your plans for the night, right? Like, you'd be like, we're going. You'd bring your like single Doritos Loco taco there and you'd be like, please, Mr. Multiply this. Like, they're three times more expensive than the other ones, but this is my favorite one. And Amden took all the rest of my money, right? You would be there for sure with something for this dude to multiply. It's a miracle. It is impressive. But who cares? Like, why is, this, why is this in here? Like, and more broadly, like, what's the point with all the miracles? Because there's like miracle after miracle after miracle. And it's after a while, you're like, okay, I get it. Like, Jesus is a dude who did miracles. And, you know, Jesus, I get it. He's the dude you want when beer runs out at the party. He turns water into wine. Like, okay, I'll invite that guy. Like, he does miracles, right? He's the dude you want at your pool party. He's like, he doesn't need a noodle. He floats on his feet. Like, he's a cool guy, you know? 
Like, he, he works miracles. You have, like, the, the next variant. You go find Jesus, you cough on him, you get healed, right? Like, he's a great guy to have around. But the question is, why are all these miracles here? Now, Jesus did these miracles, but when the Bible gives us its stories, it actually expects us to, like, spend some time with them. Like, I actually think probably for a lot of you, you've spent a lot of time reading the Bible, and you've kind of, like, blitzed through these these chapters, you probably actually heard these stories before, right? Like feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing people. Probably there's very few of them in the room that you're like, no way, like Jesus did that, right? Like you're like, if you grew up in America, you're like, oh, I've heard that before, even if you haven't read it in the Bible. But when the Bible gives you these stories, it actually means for you to like pay attention and to like kind of like simmer in them and, and ask the text questions and spend time with it because almost every story in the Bible, everything Jesus did, it both means something kind of on its face. But for those who take time and those who sit in it, there's always a deeper message, right? Like it means something. You could just blitz through this and you could come away with this obvious message. Jesus is powerful. And that is what it means. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't, it doesn't not mean that. Like it means that Jesus is powerful, but it means something deeper. And so let me, let me ask this question. How does this story start of Jesus feeding this massive crowd? How does it start? You remember? Jesus takes his disciples to a very specific place. They mention it three times, right? It's kind of, whenever you notice that, you should pay attention in your Bible. He says, he says let's go to a desolate place. And then later they're like, we're going to a desolate place. And then later they're like, Jesus, we are in a desolate place, right? And it keeps saying that over and over again. And this phrase just means like the wilderness. And so what Jesus does is he meets these people in a wilderness. And weirdly, instead of it being a place of scarcity, kind of this inhospitable, hard place with a very simple prayer, he turns it into something that's like a garden of abundance where no one's hungry and no one has any needs. Does that remind you of anything? Maybe the beginning of the Bible or the beginning story of the Bible, if you don't know it, God and his children, they existed in this garden of provision that was marked by food and safety and comfort. And then in the aftermath of our sinful choices, we're cast out of that garden and we're actually cast outside of the walls of this provision into the wilderness, this desolate place. And it's really interesting because what's happening is when Jesus is near, it is as though the story of the world that's actually gone from light into darkness begins to unwind itself. Because all of a sudden, it isn't just that Jesus can feed you when you're hungry. That's not the point of the story. The author is actually trying to clue you in to this bigger story of the world that's been happening from the very beginning. Jesus somehow takes the wilderness that we are in. And when he is near, he turns it back into like this garden of abundance and provision. And that's the first story. But then in verse 45, if you caught this, it says, now immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So it's like whatever's happening, the author is trying to get you to like connect these stories together. Like immediately after that happened, Jesus is like, get out of here, get in the boat and go over there. So his disciples, they do that, they go. And the next thing we see is Jesus on the water. You know, and this story is amazing, and it's one that probably most of you know. It's the story of Jesus walking on the water. But I want you to just, like, notice the details. Look at verse 48, okay? Look there in your Bible if you got it open. It says that this happens in the fourth watch of the night. 
Very specific, all right? And you're like, uh, I don't know what the fourth watch of the night is. Fair enough, all right? It's like 3 to 6 a.m. It's basically this time that's meant to represent like the darkest part of the night, like complete darkness, and it's right before the sun is about to rise. This is when it happens. And Jesus, he sees his disciples are having trouble. He goes out to them, right? And Jesus does this in a pretty cool way. He does it by walking on top of the water, okay? It's amazing. Like, there is a miracle. It is incredible. Now, does Jesus walking on the water make him better than you? Yes, it does. All right? Like, what do you got? Like, Jesus walks on water. You're like, but my ACT scores. Jesus is like, I walk on the water. Like, this makes Jesus better than you, period. All right? Like, he is legit. The dude walks on water. It is supposed to impress you, but that's not the point of the story. It's supposed to make you think. It's supposed to make you think. And I hope when you read the Bible, you engage with it with a similar level of intellect and questioning that you do with your studies here, probably even a greater level because the Bible isn't this simple book that's just given to you to kind of quickly gloss by. It's a book literally written by God that has the most complex story that's ever been written by human beings. It's a book literally breathed out by God and you're not gonna just get it if you just skim it. You'll see some stuff. You'll see that Jesus is powerful, but he wants you to actually sit with this to chew on and figure out what is this trying to teach me about Jesus? It's not just supposed to impress you. It's supposed to make you think, why does Jesus do this? Because he could have just, he's trying to go to the other side, right? And it's like a weirdly uh, inconvenient way for him to get to the other side, like walking on water through a storm, right? Like he could have teleported. Uh, He could have just like helped them from a distance, but he doesn't. He comes to them walking, even hovering over the face of the waters. Do you remember any other time in the Bible when darkness was over the face of the deep and something was hovering over the face of the waters? You might, and that might be ringing some bells for you, but I can be... I can guarantee you that for Jesus' disciples, it did because what's playing out before them is actually a picture of the beginning of the world. Genesis 1, very first page in your Bible, this is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, the story is not simple because <laughs> it's the darkest part of the night and Jesus' followers are in their boat. They're struggling. There's wind and water that's like whipping into their faces. There's waves. There's chaos. It's probably extremely loud and they're yelling to one another, pulling on the rigging of this little boat, trying to keep it on a course. And next to them, unaffected by any of this, Jesus is standing above the waves and he's walking towards them. And it says they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. And I want you to just, like, picture that moment. Like, just picture it. Put yourself in the boat. You're getting tossed around. It's complete darkness. A storm is raging around you. Wind is so loud you can't hear yourself think. And out from a darkness, there is a man who is standing on the waves. And he looks at you, and you are terrified. And this is what he says. 
He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. He says, take heart. And in most translations, they say, it is I. Or maybe in your Bible, you get a different translation that said, it's me. Um, and, and what they're doing, the people who are translating this from the Greek, they're trying to make what Jesus actually says make grammatical sense because to make it kind of readable for us in English because what Jesus says is something that's actually really kind of strange. What he says in the Greek is actually the words, ego, I, me. Anyone studying Greek? Take heart, do not be afraid, ego, I, me. And I'm gonna explain why this is actually, I think, one of the most powerful moments in the history of the world. When Jesus says that, because over, 10, over a thousand years before this moment, a man named Moses would be drawn towards a bush that was on fire, but wasn't burning up, a really strange sight. This guy would approach this bush and God would speak to him. He'd say, hey, Moses, uh, actually don't come any closer. You're on holy ground. You need to take your sandals off because this thing that's about to happen between me and you is gonna be really, really sacred and profound. And I don't want you to profane it with your sandals. And so Moses has this encounter with the presence of God. And Moses and God, they had this conversation. And at the end of this encounter, Moses did something that was kind of bold and kind of amazing because Moses stops the conversation and says, hey, what is your name? I'm gonna go and tell people about you, but what's your name? And he wasn't just asking what he should call him. He was asking for his identity. Like that's what a name in Hebrew, just like it's your identity. Like the most revealing thing about you is your name. And so he's saying, tell me who you really are. Are, and this is what God says. He says, Echwah, Asher, Echwah. You're getting a little bit of Hebrew tonight, all right? Echwah, Asher, Echwah. And it's more breathy and spitty than I can even do it, all right? This is what it means I am who I am. What's your name? Like, tell me your name. I am who I am. Now, let's just be honest. That's a really strange response to that question, all right? Like, and it seems super unhelpful. Like, if you're in, it's like a scene in a movie where, like, you have this, the dude, the handsome guy, like, meets the girl, like, at a party, and they're like, oh, my gosh, they had this, like, amazing night together, and they're like, I think this is the one, like, my soulmate. And then all of a sudden, he realizes, like, she's leaving town the next day, and he never got her name. And he's, like, running to the bus stop, the Amtrak station, and you see her, like, she's going away, and he's, like, yelling after her, like, Hey, what's your name? And she holds her head out and it's like misty. There's music and you just hear through the fog like, I am who I am. You'd be like, okay. You know, like what? How is that helpful? I am who I am. And this phrase, you know, it's this phrase that we actually get the name of God in the Old Testament Yahweh. Because Echweh, it, it means I am. But when God gives that to us and says, Moses, you should tell people Yahweh sent you. Yahweh means like he is. So when, when he says his name, he says, I am. But when he gives his name for us to say, we say he is. But when God defines himself with the name I am, listen, he's saying something that is and only can be true of him. 
He's saying something that is and only can be true of him because this, this name, I am, he's, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I am not defined by anything other than myself. I am my own definition. In fact, I am the definition. I define myself because nothing other than me could possibly define me because I am absolute existence. I have no beginning. I have no end. I do not change. I do not waver. I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And every single time we say the name of God, we are declaring that. He is. I am. And whatever God is, he is the fullest and most complete definition of that. And he will always and forever be that. He says, I am. It's like in this name, he speaks it. It's like what he's saying is all matter, all existence, every single inch of this cosmos is merely a shadow or an echo compared to me. And he can't be improved upon because his nature and his existence is fundamental. He is who he is. Here's the point. When God says that his name is I am, he is not just saying, this is what I call myself. He is making a statement about himself and his identity that transcends, it transcends anything else you could possibly say with human language. It's unbelievably deep what God is saying when he reveals his name. And when Jesus Christ meets his disciples in the darkness, hovering above the face of the waters, he doesn't just say, don't be afraid, it's me. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, it's I. In the Greek, he says, tharsate ego I me me febesthi. In English, it, he literally just says, take heart. Do not be afraid, I am. And then he gets into the boat. And then the moment he gets into the boat, the wind ceased. And it says they were utterly astounded. And as they continue moving towards shore, as the light of morning comes up, they get to the other side. And the man who was hovering above the water, he now stands on the shore and everyone from the whole region brings their sick and dying to him. And it says that everyone who even can touch the edge of his robes is healed. And I don't know who you think Jesus is. I don't know the weight that Jesus has in your life. But for these disciples on the shore, as a crowd of people is screaming the name of Jesus, pushing and trying to get closer to him because his very presence can make dead things come alive. I bet that the disciples began to ask in their hearts, maybe this man doesn't just have power to work miracles or bring life, but maybe the one who's standing here before us is the author of life himself. When Jesus sees this crowd of people in the beginning, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know if you know anything about sheep, but they really need a shepherd. <laughs> like they really need a shepherd. Like if they fall on their back, they're probably going to die unless someone tips them over. 
like that, like legit. <laughs> there's a hole, they will fall in it, and they will die unless there's a shepherd. Like sheep will, sheep will see grass over the edge of a cliff, and they will tumble over the edge of the cliff to get to the grass, and they will die unless a shepherd is there to guide them away from destruction to the path of life. And when Jesus looks at you, or a crowd of people very much like you, he sees people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And at the end of the story, I think you could just say, it's like he sees children of God without their father. And I don't know who you think Jesus is, but I'm telling you, he is weightier and more majestic than you could possibly imagine. And I don't know what place Jesus has in your life. I don't know what weight he carries. I don't know if he's like your everything or if he's just someone you've kind of put in the corner of your life. But I feel like in moments like this, as the disciples were watching this man, he was probably in the middle of this crowd as people were merely touching his robes and being healed. It's probably he was like looking at his followers and he was like, this is how seriously I want you to take me. Do you know who I am? Do you know my name? There's a lot of you in the room. You're followers of Jesus. You've, de- you've decided that. You're like, I want to follow Jesus. My question is not so much have you decided to follow Jesus. My question tonight is, is who he is like the majesty of who he is? Does that carry an appropriate weight in your life? Or is who Jesus really is radically disproportional to who he means to you? I remember when I was a freshman in college, man, Jesus, like I knew things about him. I didn't know how big he was. I didn't know how massive, I I didn't know who he was. I, I had some ideas, but he wasn't my everything. And I think this moment on the shore, when they're looking at Jesus, the dude who just literally hovered above the waters, like the spirit of God at the beginning of creation, the one who literally is bringing back plenty and goodness into our barren wilderness, the one who's literally like, I am the author of life. Just touch the edge of my clothes and you will be healed. I think in this moment, his disciples were like, we're following Jesus. We've left a lot to be his disciples. But from this moment forward, we are all gonna take him way, way more seriously because now I think we're starting to get a glimpse of who he really is. Let's pray.